We've been going through this series we're calling Saved, uh, and we're trying to get across, I'm, I'm hoping that this visually impacts you as you see how good God is. The whole series has been built around this idea that we just don't stop enough in awe. And we just don't stop enough and, and, say, and say thank you. We don't, we don't stop enough and just take in the breadth of God's grace and love and mercy. And so what I've been trying to do throughout this Roman series, and I know it's a complicated book, and I know there's a lot of things we didn't touch on, and I know there might be a lot of questions you still have, but that's been the point, is I just want you to stop and just look and see what it means every time you say, I am saved. It's a big deal. And the last thing we want to point out today, um, we are, we're going to continue on the series, it's going to take a little bit of a shift, but, but the last thing we want to talk about under the umbrella here is Victory. Victory. Uh, that might have been the most aggressive version of victory in Jesus that I have ever been a part of. And I loved it. It was great. Uh, but I was like, whoa, that's, that's victory. And that's, in some ways, what we should be doing. I hope that as we sing praises to God, as we think about all of this, we are singing our hearts out. And we're just pouring them out until our voices our, our threadbare, our, our, our throats are hoarse. We, we, we can't even get them out anymore because God has been so immeasurably good to us that he deserves all thanksgiving, all glory, all honor, and all praise because of the victory that's been given to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so this morning, let's turn in our Bibles to um, Romans chapter 7. Begin to unpack this. Romans chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through chapter 8, verse 1. I want to just remind you, for those of you who might be new to the whole Jesus Bible thing, if you open your Bible up or the Bible in the pew in front of you or you have some kind of app, you'll notice numbers, they're chapter numbers and verse numbers that make it easy for you so that I don't have to say open to Romans, um, you know, somewhere in the middle. I can say, go to chapter 7, verse 7. But God did not put these verses into the Bible. We did to make life easier for us. So if you're reading a chapter book, you pick it up from the library, a a new chapter is a new chapter. It's it's something completely new. The argument from the former is ended, and we're beginning sort of a a, a new theme or a new chapter or whatever. Uh, This is not so in the Bible all the time. And so chapter 8 flows directly from chapter 7. So we're going to kind of dive a little bit into chapter 8. What we're given here in chapter 7 is somewhat of what we saw last week in chapter 6. Paul gives a brief interjection in verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now remember with me that Romans is an argument. Paul is laying out an argument for these Christians. He's trying to help them to understand and to see something deeper than where they were at currently. And so he's speaking for them. He's asking the question, they are probably already thinking. And they're asking the question, is the law sin? Now, if you're new again to the Jesus thing, think of law like the Ten Commandments. 
Everybody's heard of that. Everybody heard of the Ten Commandments? You know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not. God comes into the world, speaks to Moses, and he says, here's a list of things I don't want you guys to do. Here's a, things, a list of things I want you guys to do. This is, the, this is the law, the Ten Commandments. And yet the Ten Commandments, throughout this section uh, that we've been talking about, throughout these series we, we've been talking about, Jesus is setting those aside to some extent. Those are no longer requirements for being found in Jesus, rather now or being found in God. Rather, Jesus is the requirement for being found in God. Jesus, as, as Jack pointed out, is now the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And so things are shifted a little bit. And so they're asking the question, well, then, is the law, is that Old Testament? Is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Can I just kind of rip that out of the back of the Bible and toss it out because it's sin, because it's not good? What is his answer? This is, I believe this is, here, I, it's, English is tough, it is. Let me, what, what is his, what is his answer? No! Right? It's a strong negation. This is an imperative in the, in the structure of the sentence. No, absolutely not. Do not tear those books out of your Bible. In fact, he's going to argue here that you need to read them. You need to know them. Why? He's going to explain Verses, the second half of verse 7 there, he says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law did not say to me, you shall not covet. I wouldn't know the will of God. I wouldn't know what he wants out of my life unless he gives me some clue, right? I mean, we, we're sort of wandering, bumping about in darkness, and then we need God to step in and say, here's what I want you to do. So I wouldn't know how to follow God if the law didn't set it down and say, here's what it looks like to follow God. Make sense? But what does sin do? Sin comes in. As I was um, working through the sermon just kind of a little bit this morning, I thought of Lost. You guys remember, anybody watch that show, Lost? I feel like, hey, all right, you get perked up. Very nice. Right. (laughs) Lost. She was asleep. I mean, dead out, drooling on dad. And I said lost, and Audrey's up. Very good. So remember that, like, smoke monster? That's kind of like, that smoke monster to come and, like, devour something? Like, that, conceive of sin this way. You're wandering along, and the commandment is given, and the smoke monster of sin just swallows you up. The sin seizes an opportunity, in verse 8, through the commandment. And what does it do? It produces in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, right? Because I didn't know what sin was. I was, I was alive, but then the law came. And like that smoke monster from lost, the sin comes into the midst of it, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin seized that opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, through it killed me. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. So let's break this up. What is Paul saying? He is saying the Old Testament law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you've ever read those books, there's a bunch of stories. Like it's sort of like a sort of like a little trick um, because you're reading Genesis, you're like, oh, these are kind of these are good stories, and then you get to Exodus, and there's like you know like twelve chapters of stories, and all of a sudden it's like laws, and that's kind of where our eyes glass over and tune out. Um, But those are very important. Christians should dive into that. We should know those things. Why? Because Paul says, the law said to me, stop coveting. 
The law told me what God wanted. It named names. If you want victory over sin, you want victory over the sin? Good, I'm really glad to hear that. (laughs) We want victory over sin. The first thing we have to do is know its name. The first thing you have to do is to be able to say, this is wrong, and I shouldn't be involved in it in any way. The first thing I need to know about sin is that it's sin. And that's what the Old Testament does. As you crack it open, you begin to see the holiness of God and what he is calling you to do. Now, Jesus makes this explicit, that this is about, and this has always been about, what God wants for us internally. It isn't just that God doesn't want you to steal God doesn't want you to have the kind of covetousness in your heart that would lead you to steal. You with me? That makes sense? That our actions are produced by our thoughts, by our will, by our desires, and then we sort of travel along, and that becomes what we do. So our minds, our our thoughts, these are very important, and those are shaped by the stories that we tell and the songs that we sing, and this is why Netflix binging is dangerous. Imagine if you spent six hours on a weekend and you just hit play on the Bible. How interesting would that be for us as a people to be the people that did that? And how weird, right? People would be like, what did you guys, did you you catch the new, I, I don't know, I'm sorry, I'm not, whatever the new thing is. Did you, watch the, did, you, did you watch that over the weekend? And you're like, no, I, I listened to the Bible for six hours. Thank you. Right? Yes, exactly. They, would, they might laugh at you or just sort of say, okay, and move on. But imagine the kind of people that would be made from that amount of content going into our lives. The songs that we sing and the stories that we tell shape our actions, and they point us toward holiness, which is why David says in Psalm 119, verses 96 through 98, um, To all perfection, I see a limit. So all of the actions of people, all the things that I see out there, I see a limit. But your commandments are boundless. Boundless in their efficacy. Boundless in their power. Boundless in their ability to change, shape, mold, and make us a people fit for God and his kingdom. Oh, how I love your law, he says. I meditate on it all day long. Your commandments are always with me. And what do they do? Make me wiser than my enemies, even when my greatest enemy is me. It's a powerful word. Paul suggests then that part of the victory of our, uh, of our, part of the victory over sin begins with this, with naming names. It's interesting, isn't it, that he names covetousness uh, on the, the weekend before we enter into the Christmas season, before Black Friday, and we unleash all of our, unleash all of our avarice Right? It's just, it was funny that I was reading this and I was just thinking about Black Friday sales. Because as you know, working um, at, at a store, I, I saw uh, more than my fair share of them. How interesting is it that um, even Christians are going to celebrate the birth of the Savior, the birth of the one who came to say in Luke chapter 4, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me for this reason to proclaim freedom for the oppressed, recovery of sight for the blind, to set 
to liberty the captives and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. And yet 99% of what you will purchase for other people this Christmas season is built by slaves in other countries. It's such a very interesting situation we find ourselves in as Christians in the privileged West. And so I would lay this at your feet or at your Christmas table or your Thanksgiving table or wherever you will next talk about these things. Perhaps what we should be busy doing over the next season is calling out sin, naming it, and thinking about how we could engender something greater in our children. What can you do to create in the children that are going to be running around your houses more grace, more patience, more love, more compassion, more mercy, more joy, more contentment? How do we build that into our families? And let's spend our effort, our time, our thought our stories and our songs surrounded there. And in this way, perhaps be more faithful in celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior. So the law names names names. It names sin. And Paul says because of this naming of sin, it produced, he says, every kind of covetousness in me. Because now that I know what it looks like to covet in my workplace, I know what it looks like to covet with my marriage relationship or with my family or with my friends or with my possessions or, or all of the different aspects of covetousness now open up and I can see how big it is. And as I was contemplating this week how covetousness has affected my life, I began to think to myself, Jordan, you're a really terrible person. And in that way, we sort of think, wow, we step back and say, look at all of the ways in which covetousness can affect me, all the temptations that stand out there and how easy it gets in. And he says, listen, that's what the law does. Once it names names, we see it all over the place. And the question, is, of course, that we're going to ask is, what do we do with it? But we see it all over the place. And that leads to the obvious question then, did the law bring this about? Is the law to blame for this Sin that is now alive and well and bringing me death. Did the law bring death? What is his answer? That was better. Still not what I would call strong, but better. He has a strong negation. Is the law to blame for the sin and the death that have now taken advantage of that law and like the smoke monster swallowed me up? No, absolutely not. And now he is going to explain Um, why here in verses 13 through, and I'm going to read through 22. So uh, look at your scriptures there. But that which is good, the law, then did that which is good, the law, then bring about death in me, he says, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So part of the law, what it does is it brings up in us this ability to then view sin in its vastness. To see how big it is. Because sometimes we have the idea that, you know, no, we're, we're a good person and I do a few things wrong. The scriptures say, no, sin has swallowed you whole. See the vastness of it. How 
great and replete and dark are the enemies of God, of course, that makes God's victory even greater. You with me? So, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I can agree that the law is good. If there's a something in me, if there's a hunger in me that says, I want to follow God, and yet, and yet I can't seem to make that happen, I can look at the law and say, that law is very good. I just can't seem to make it happen. Right? That's the conundrum he's, he's, he's after here, he's sharing here. Um, uh, verse 17. So it is now, no, verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So now, it is no longer I who do the sin, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do is what I keep on doing. Now, if if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So you kind of see him saying the same things over and over again. This is a Jewish um, uh, uh, tactic to try to get it in your brains. He's going to do this again in verses 24 through 8 1. So I find that there is a law, uh, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is right there. It's close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against me, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. And so here Paul, and, and, and we, need to, we need to be very careful about this because there's been a, a number of people over the years who have, uh, and especially more charismatic groups, who will tend to blow this out of proportion and lead us down kind of a heretical trail. Paul is not saying that this flesh, your body, is evil and that what we're hoping for is that at some point this body will sort of slough it off and our spirits will fly away, right? That is not the good news. If you'll remember, when they went to the tomb, what did they find? Nothing. Why did they find nothing? Because he arose, because he came to life again. Certainly he's changed, certainly he's glorified, certainly he's not the same Jesus that there was before the grave, but there was no body, right? And so this has led to some, some uh, what we would call dualism, where we have this idea that the spirit is good and this body, this flesh is bad. What Paul is after is the same thing that we read in James. James tells us that when we're tempted, we should not say, God, why are you tempting me? God, why did you make food so good so that now I overeat and overeat, right? That's not God's fault. Some amens there. Yes. But we say, God, it's so good. How dare you? I mean, why didn't you make food taste like dirt or something? And God says, what? Right? So don't say when you're faced with something that you know you ought not to do, well, it's God's fault, I guess I need to do it. Or don't look to blame God when you do something evil or someone else does something evil to you. It isn't God tempting you, and it isn't God tempting other people. What is it? He says, it is the person. The person is tempted as they are dragged away and enticed by their own 
evil desires. The problem isn't with God, and the problem isn't the food. The problem is you. The problem is me. The problem is that there are times where we allow our passions to just run away with us. And those who are not in Jesus at all, man, it is running away with them all the time, isn't it? Because their eyes are darkened, their minds, they think futile thoughts, and they they don't have the will that has been given to them by the Spirit of God. And so they have a different set of priorities built up into them. And so, he says, James says, when the desire has conceived in us, when that little seed has been planted, when that germ infects your mind or your heart or your will, and we allow it to grow, it gives birth to a full-blown virus, and you are infected. And what is the outcome? The outcome is death. Death. If you're here today... And you are not a Christian. My plea for you is to hear the law that says thou shalt not. To look at your lives and the times in which you have said, well, I'm going to do what I want. And to feel the conflict between those two things. This is an important step in conversion The conflict of the conscience. When we come before a holy God and see his holiness, look at ourselves and see our lostness, we should ask the question, God, what can be done for me? What can save me from this body of death? What can be done? He says that here, actually, in verses 23 and 24. He says, I sense that there's this war happening within me. Uh, my mind, uh, but my desires are, are, are deviated. They're pushing me elsewhere. And so there's this constant battle between sin and, and, and this possibility of walking with God. He says in verse 24, wretched, terrible, awful, lost man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then he says, so this is him, then he's going to reiterate it. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. I, I know that's something I want. But with my flesh, I'm serving sin. What, what can be done? Verse eight, chapter, one, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has done what? Set, underline that in your Bibles. What has the law of the Spirit done? It has set you free. You were enslaved to sin. You were enslaved to Satan. You were enslaved to death. But you are no longer a slave. You have victory in Jesus. You have been saved. Amen. You have been saved. This is good News And I I really want to hammer this point home because I have heard this text preached so many times. And so often when I hear it preached, it's a way of saying, this is the life of the Christian. This is the life of the believer. I am always wrestling in my mind to follow God, but I'm constantly at war with my flesh because I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm going to constantly continue to sin and sin and sin and sin. And that is wrong, 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 wrong. 
It's like they didn't even read chapter 6. It's like the preacher jumped right over it and just landed feet first in chapter 7. Because what did chapter 6 say? Verse 1, you shall not continue in sin. Somebody's saying amen. I appreciate this. And he goes on and on and on saying, hey, listen, you've been baptized. You, you've, been, you've, been, you've died to sin and you've been raised up with Jesus so that you can walk in the newness of life. What are you talking about walking in sin? That's not you at all. Then what's he say in verse 15? That was a sermon last week. Verse 15, he says, well, then here's the rhetorical question. Well, what about a sin? Can I do a sin just like, you know, once in a while, just a sin? And he says, no, absolutely not. Strong negation, by no means. Why? Because You have died to sin, and now you are walking in a newness of life. And so the problem, I think, so often is that Christians don't tell the truth. We don't tell the truth about our situation. What is your situation right here, right now? Saved, reconciled, justified, free sanctified, victorious. These are words that we have read and talked about and they are applied to you right here and right now. Why are we always so defeatist? Why are we always looking at sin and saying, man, I don't know if I can beat that today. Yeah, you can beat it. Well, yeah, you can beat it today. Why? Because Jesus beat it on the cross, empowered you with his Holy Spirit. So now you have the ability to say, no, and let me put it this way. Think about Romans chapter 1, verse 21. We talked about this. I talked about this for like 38 minutes. I apologize. It was, it was really long. But like 38 minutes, all the way back to the beginning. And I said, we see there something very important. Paul is talking about people who are not in Jesus, people who don't even know the commandments, And he says about them, he says that they were um, futile in their thinking. That means that there is a worthlessness to their reasoning. There is a way of, their logic, they are incapable of thinking like you. They can't think right. And then he says, their foolish hearts were darkened. So he attaches two things, reason and will. Hard is will, remember, in the, in the Bible. So their ability to reason along the lines of their will. What am I going to do next? What's my next decision? It's dark and it's like a blanket. You turn the lights off and you throw a dark blanket over you and you can't see your hands in front of your face. That's how messed up their desires are. But something new has happened in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, right? He was the propitiation. He took the sin of the world and the wrath of God and by his stripes we are healed. And he gives to us his righteousness so that when God sees us, not just sees us, but when he sees us in our hearts because of sanctification, you have the Holy Spirit in you. Those of you today who are Christians, the Holy Spirit of God The active power of the living God in his presence, majesty, and glory dwells in you. Don't tell me you can't beat sin. Don't tell me you can't be holy people. And the way that we become holy people is that we empower ourselves with the truth and we recognize the truth. My eyes are now open. My mind is now clear. My heart is now fixed to Jesus And I can walk in a newness of life. We have victory. Now, this does not mean that you're not going to mess up. It doesn't mean 
There aren't going to be habits you're going to have to break. In fact, what is most importantly going to happen to us as Christians is that as you begin to walk with Jesus more and more, you realize how much more God has to fix in you. The thing that I've discovered as I've walked with Jesus these years is, wow, I am really broken. And I keep on seeing areas where, God, you need to make me better, make me holy. I need you. As he reveals more and more, as I read his law more and more, he says, look, you're coveting over here. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, you're right. Save me from it. And I have the ability, the unique ability, as you do as well, that other people who are not walking with Jesus have. They're enslaved to that. You are free from it. You're free from it. And so we... Uh, need to do three things, three really important things. And this is kind of where I, oh, I hit the wrong button. There we go. That's the right button. There we go. Three things that are really important. The first thing we need to do is to begin telling the truth. Now, this doesn't mean that y'all are running around lying intentionally, um, but we do tell ourselves false narratives. We say, I can't beat it, I can't win, I, I'm, I'm, you know, this, this thing has got me, it's, it's, I'm shackled to it. And the Bible keeps on saying over and over again, no, no. If you were Romans 6, for we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, for we know that our old self has been crucified with Jesus in order that the body of our sin might be brought to nothing, just made non-existent, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for the one who has died has set us free from sin. Sin is no longer your master. You now can walk in the newness of life, and we need to start telling the truth about it. We need to start declaring it, uh, to, to not get too charismatic on y'all, but we need to claim it. We need to claim it. That's our truth. Given to you in scripture. Your gift given to you by God. And what can we do after that? Once we have laid claim to it, we can begin to believe it. Because honestly and truthfully, the more that you say the truth, the more the things that you say will shape the things that you believe. The more that you let the truth into your ears and into your heart, the more the truth will shape what you believe and the truth is according to colossians is that god has removed you he has transferred you from the dominion of darkness and put you currently right now into the kingdom of his beloved son the darkness that we see all around us all of the lost smoke monsters they have no power or authority they are not our territory they are in our land we have a citizenship that is in heaven and we await the Savior to come and bring us the inheritance promised. So tell the truth, believe the truth, and once these things begin to permeate your life, we can begin to live and practice the truth. And the truth is that you are holy. You know how often the Bible calls all y'all sanctified, holy ones, saints? To the saints in Corinth, and just the truth is, I think they've got more problems than we do. And we got our problems. And he looks at them and he says, you're holy. You're saints. We read the same passage here in John, 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 3 and 5, which says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdens to us. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. 
There is every kind of victory in Jesus. There is victory over every problem, every burden, every weight. For everyone born of God has overcome the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. So as we move into a season of Thanksgiving, it seems to me incredibly appropriate that all of this next week, we are wrapped up in that word thanksgiving and rejoicing and giving honor and praise and glory to the one who has brought to us the victory over sin and over the devil and over death, who has set us free and brought us into the highest place that we might be called the sons and daughters of God. Let's stand and sing in victory over the God who has brought us.